How's everyone doing? Good to hear. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us in our journey. We are going on the way with Jesus as he is moving towards the cross and towards the resurrection of Easter. And as we've been following, we've, we've noticed that the, the life of Jesus is paralleling also the life of the people of Israel. Just as Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus has gone through the waters of the baptism. Just as Israel went through the desert, we saw Jesus going through the temptations in the desert. And now we're going to join Jesus as he, like Moses, climbs a mountain. If you remember, Moses gave the law, the Ten Commandments, he came down with the law on the mountain. And we're going to see Jesus himself climb a mountain. Now, how many people have been on a mountain before? You ever been on the top of a mountain? It's breathtaking, isn't it? There's something about being there that can be very uh, overwhelming. You recognize kind of looking down below and surveying the land, you recognize like your own smallness. You recognize like the greatness of who God is. I was on a mountaintop in Bolivia here. Ah. Oh. <laughs> oh, I was probably 16 or 17 in this picture. It was actually a, a very important time in life. It was actually in Bolivia. And I went on a mission trip, and I remember going into the mountains and being amongst the people there. And it was a formative time in my life, actually, uh, being able to just recognize I felt that that was part of my calling during that time, discerning the call that God had called me into ministry. And we see that important things often happen on mountains in Scripture. Can you think of any important mountaintop moments? Ten Commandments? Mount Zion? Remember Elijah's actually in, on a mountaintop when he finally sees God in the still small voice? Abraham. A Abraham and Isaac on the mountain? There's something about the mountain in Scripture where there's some very important events. And so Jesus being on the mountain, we're going we're to recognize it's much like the Ten Commandments. There's kind of this important history behind it as he stands on this mountain and as he begins to give what we could often call the, the law of Christ. Now, we kind of have an interesting relationship as Christians with the whole idea of law, don't we? Because we recognize that the law and, and many aspects of the law no longer apply to us as Christians, but at the same time, we recognize that the law was this good gift given, but how does that reconcile with the idea of the grace of God? And so today I want to talk about the new commandments, the new law that's given by Jesus on top of a mountain and how this kind of relates to us as Christians. And so there's a few things I want to talk about. There's three themes I hope you just kind of keep in your hearts and your minds as we go through this. The first one is that this is a, a new picture, a new law given for a new people. Jesus is now, just like Moses gave words to a people called the people of God of Israel, now we're hearing Jesus give a word to the people of God, which are the followers of Jesus. The second thing is that much of the Sermon on the Mount is written with a polemic. Much of the Sermon on the Mount, when you, when you receive it, you have to understand that he's writing with the Pharisees in mind. He's speaking in many ways as a countercultural voice to what the Pharisees are filling in the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel. And the third thing is, out of that, as we read this, we have to recognize that undergirding the entire Sermon on the Mount is a heart of mercy and a heart of grace. And we need to keep that because when you start to hear some of the words, there are some hard words that come. 
but it's all coming from a God who is merciful and gracious. Jesus is demonstrating here that he is the new Moses. In fact, he's demonstrating that, that he is greater than Moses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So imagine he's up in a mountain and he has crowds around him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they will have the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your word is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. We often call this the Beatitudes. What Jesus is giving to us is the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God. This is giving us a new characterization. This is what people will look like in a time where they are waiting for God to finally complete the kingdom. They're in this posture of humility, facing persecution, mercy, facing hatred, meekness, poorness in spirit, peace. These are all characteristics of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful thing. When you, when you hear this, doesn't your spirit kind of stir within you? are like, oh yeah, that sounds lovely. It sounds difficult. But it sounds beautiful. The key theme here, I would say, is a theme of compassion, a theme of mercy. And remember, this is going to mark the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's in the bracketing, it, that there is this God who loves and has compassion. He wants his people to be people full of mercy and compassion. It's an ethical idealism. It's a picture of what the kingdom is supposed to look like, what we should aspire to be like. In fact, right after he calls us salt, he calls us light, he says that we as the church, as the people of God, are supposed to be a presence that preserving and edifying and giving flavor to the world, that's bringing light into the darkness. This is what the people of God are like. And yet, we realize as he says this, there's, there's a new king in town, there's a new way of being, and yet he's not rejecting completely the law that comes before him. And so we start to see him, he's starting to confront the Pharisees now. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's a very unique role of Jesus. He is actually fulfilling the law, which others cannot do. Because look what he says next, a few verses later in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That final phrase, is it somewhat frightening to you? 
If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, I can imagine the crowd going like, oh man, there's no hope for me. Those Pharisees, man, all they do is religious stuff all the time. They're like, God, 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 all the time. They make rules to go around the rules so they make sure they don't come close to breaking the rules. How am I supposed to ever exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? What's interesting, though, here is actually this is not a positive comment towards the Pharisees. I'm like, oh, they're so awesome. You have to be an awesomer. What it's trying to show is the Pharisees, when they play this game of being good enough to get to heaven, they don't cut it. The Pharisees think that they're going to be part of the kingdom. They think that they're the rulers in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, Jesus put in the word out there, by the way, that's not real righteousness. Real righteousness isn't keeping all these little rules all the time. It's actually an inner heart transplant. It's actually a new heart, a new way of looking at things. They're trying to keep the law of Moses. And they're putting all extra rules around the law of Moses. And Jesus is going to come around. He's going to say, oh yeah, the law of Moses? By the way, God's upping it. You think that completing the law of Moses, you're going to be righteous enough to get to heaven be part of the kingdom of heaven. But in fact, that was all kind of like for you when you were in the sandbox as a little nation of Israel. And now you're growing up a little bit. And so I'm going to give you the actual picture of what the kingdom looks like. Here's what you actually need to look like to be part of the kingdom of God. And so he ups it. It's often called the six antitheses I'm about to go through. He says, you heard it said, or basically Moses said this, but I say this. And he goes through six major commandments of Moses and he ups the ante. The Pharisees think, oh, I'm doing all right. He says, nah, you're not even close. You heard it said before, don't murder. But I say, you can't even call someone a fool in your heart. You heard it said before, don't commit adultery. But hey, Pharisees, have you been lusting after someone in your mind? You've already committed adultery. You heard it said, if you need a divorce, just write a certificate. But I say, the two become one flesh. You heard it said, if you're going to give an oath, swear by these things. But I say, don't give an oath. Your word has to be so strong. Your yes is yes and your no is no. You don't need oaths. Because you're so trustworthy. You heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I say, offer up the other cheek to be hit. You heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself. But I say, love your enemy. Love ISIS. You can imagine the Pharisees hearing this, thinking that they had it made, right? They were the top. Everyone's looking at them. Well, I kept all these rules, and I've done all this. And everyone's looking at them, and he's just saying, like, by the way, you who are self-righteous, you also miss the mark. Now, what's happening in all this is God is starting to reveal his character, his, his perfection, his goodness, 
but also his mercy. When he tells us to love our neighbors, but also love our enemies, he gives us a reason. Because God loves us even though we're sinners. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God is merciful. This is who he is. You, therefore, must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who here is perfect? What? You imagine people saying to Jesus, like, Jesus, don't you know? Nobody's perfect. He's like, well, there's one. There's one who can fulfill all this. There's one who is perfect, the one speaking, the one who's calling us to perfection. What does perfection look like? How can I be perfect? And Jesus is standing right in front of him. This is what perfection looks like. And what he's doing, he's actually calling out the Pharisees who have been kind of acting as if they are the end-all and be-all of God's people. And he's saying, listen, what God is calling us to is a heart change, a, a new way of being. He is going to constantly be perfecting us. We can never think like, I got it. I, I'm there. I'm perfect. And so he starts to call them out on very specific things to make it very clear who he's talking about and what he's saying. Remember, we're in a, there's crowds of people around and they're all looking at the Pharisees as their model and Jesus saying, you need a new model. And so he starts to look at the different areas where the, the Pharisees act, they have these things called acts of righteousness. Giving to the needy, praying and fasting and the Pharisees were champions at these things. And so Jesus starts to mention them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's calling them out. Why are you doing these things? To make yourself feel better, to look better in front of people? So when you give to the needy, don't do it like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites. You can imagine the Pharisees getting angry, angry as he's calling them out for the very actions they do. Praying loudly in the streets, oh. Fasting, woe is me. Jesus is calling them out. And I, I can imagine that they're starting to get more and more angry. Because the Pharisees are far from perfect. The Pharisees need grace and mercy, just like everyone else does. And so God starts to dig into helping us explain how do we live in this time between. What you need to do is trust in God, that God is faithful, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that God loves you. And so he starts to slowly but surely take apart, piece by piece, the things that we might rely on instead of God. Money. Don't rely on your money. Don't store up treasures here on earth. Because you know what? When we have our money, we can get really self-sufficient, can't we? So I think, eh. I think that's maybe, and as North Americans, it's one of the hardest things for us to, to rely on God because we kind of got it all together. A lot of us do anyways, until a moment hits where we don't have any way of doing it ourselves. 
Then he hits us for just trusting in our own kind of ability to control things. Don't be anxious. Do not worry about anything. Do not be anxious about life or what you eat or what you drink. We have a lot of anxiousness. This is a, this is a hard one. I remember being uh, on the, the way up a mountaintop. I was in Bolivia. We were in this old rickety bus. And we are going up this little narrow path on the mountain. And it was so skinny, like enough for only for one car. So if another car came, we had to figure out what to do. We had to wait for goats to go by. It was, it was crazy. And the craziest part, or the, the most difficult part for me, was when we were going up this mountain, the, the bus was rocking. And there was times when you were looking, you looked down, and the bus would go, and you, you could look straight down the cliff. But you're like, and your, your bus is leaning kind of this way. And I remember just being like, and I had my C.S. Lewis book. And I just like, okay, God. And I just looked at my book, and I wouldn't look around, and I realized, like, I'm not in control of this bus. I don't drive this bus. I don't have any control over this cliff, this mountain. Anything to do with anything. I have no control over anything. And so I just have to sit there and, and trust. Your God is a good and loving God, and he's calling you to trust in his grace. For he's merciful. He tells us to ask and it will be given to us. He loves us. Do you trust the mercy and grace of God? And as he starts to close up his sermon, he starts to talk about the fact that everything in the law can be summed up by love your neighbor as yourself and love your God first and foremost. And then he says this little Nugget of truth. For the gate is narrow, and the way, as we're on the way, is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, workers of lawlessness. You need to trust in Jesus' word. In the final parable, the final illustration of the sermon, he says that if you trust in his words, it's like building on a firm foundation. How many people have seen houses that are built and the foundations have kind of gone askew? Notice what Jesus says. He says, my words are the firm foundation. The thing that everyone listening to this sermon needs to recognize is to put their trust in Jesus' words. To put their trust in Jesus. This is the only solution to the dilemma of perfection. This is the only solution to the problem of trying to live a life and race like the Pharisees, trying to be as good as you possibly can. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The Sermon on the Mount gives a picture of an ideal humanity under the rule of God. A new law. And sometimes, as I've been reading this, I'm sure there's a heaviness like, wow, what is he calling us to? Perfection? Everything has to be right? But notice what he's doing here. I think he's giving us hope. He's giving us a picture of a world of beauty. He's giving us a picture of what it looks like when God himself rules over the earth. People are merciful. People are loving. 
They're peacemakers. They take a strike on the cheek. They love people that don't deserve it. Jesus here is being a new Moses, and he's calling people to a new way of being. And he's saying, look, this is how I want you to live. And yes, none of us are going to actually reach this ethical ideal in this current life. But boy, isn't it beautiful? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be growing and progressing and becoming more like this? Seeing Jesus work this out in our lives. And so he confronts the Pharisees as kind of the, the, the antithesis. He, he wants us to recognize, listen, you are not going to make it on your own. There's no way that you're going to please God in all of this. And yes, we're looking to chase after this idea that we want to live and, and see our lives transform in the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit changing us and becoming, we're being perfected. But the number one trap you have is self-righteousness. Thinking that somehow you are going to be able to make yourself worthy of God. Watch out for the self-righteous heart. And so he says finally to us, I think, in this passage, that you need grace and mercy. He says it in, in showing us what the people of the kingdom of heaven are like. He does it in showing us how he is able to be our foundation and we trust in his mercy, the fact that he's a loving God that reigns on the just and the unjust. All these things we know about God's character, he is merciful and loving. It's not only that, though. If you listen to the, the, the story in the context of the whole scriptures, Jesus is giving us this picture, the Sermon on the Mount, not just kind of isolation, it's actually infused by grace all around. Before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is healing people graciously who don't deserve it. Right after the Sermon on the Mount, he's approached by a leper. Someone who is not allowed into the temple of God. And the leper says, hey, I know if, if you are willing, you can heal me. What does he say? Did you not listen to what I was saying? You gotta be perfect. He says, I'm willing. And he heals him. And right after that, a Roman centurion comes along who's an emblem of the Roman Empire who is trying to oppress the people of God who's actually crushing the nation of Israel. This Roman centurion comes and says, I have a servant working for the evil empire. Could you heal him? And he does. And we find all that the story continues. A little bit later on, there's a person who's paralyzed who comes to Jesus and says, can, can you help me? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He didn't ask for forgiveness of sins. But this mercy of Jesus, I, I forgive your sins. And the Pharisees are like, what? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, what's easier? Say your sins are forgiven or tell them to get up and walk. Therefore, so you will know that I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. The mercy of Jesus is filling all the pages of the scripture. And so we read the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of forgiveness. Matthew himself is right after this. I love the calling of Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He's sitting in his booth and he's robbing people. He's a robber. 
The Pharisees look at the tax collectors as like the evilest of the sinners. And Jesus comes up to him and says to the tax collector, well, he's in his tax collecting booth. Like he's in his sin. Hey, follow me. And what I love about Matthew is his real name is actually Levi. But he never refers to himself as Levi. He calls himself Matthew. You know what Matthew means? Disciple. He goes from being Levi to being disciple through the grace of Jesus because he knew that he would never measure up to the Pharisees and yet Jesus has come to him and says, you can follow me. My grace is sufficient. So the life of a Christian can feel daunting, but I want to share this with you. It is freeing. The perfection of Jesus and should be something that we shun away from or feel for of. It's actually a calling to us something better, but more importantly, it is the thing that actually offers us a chance to be broken away from our darkness. So if we're reading the, the scriptures here today, I want us to think about what he's calling to. I think Jesus is saying to you, be perfect. Be forgiven. Be healed. To be perfect, you need to be forgiven and be healed. And we're given that perfection of Christ. And so today I'd like us to take a moment. You have a postcard, a mountain. And recognizing that the, the law of Christ is a law of grace, a law of love and forgiveness. Let's take a moment before we enter some prayer, before we receive the Lord's Supper, before we sing together. Take a moment and ask yourself a few things and write this postcard either to a friend or to yourself or maybe to God as a prayer. When in your life did you realize that you were in need of healing? to be restored, forgiven. Or maybe answer this, how did the truth of your brokenness and the grace of Jesus show up in your life? In what ways is this gift a reality unfolding in your life even now? So where do you see God healing you now? Where do you see the grace of God around you? Let's take a moment and write a postcard on the way.